Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, and welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number 162. My name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobet Books. We're going to interrupt our usual introduction because Uh-oh. we have Cat Wars. We have Aki walking within a metre of Tinkerbell. Less than and a metre. Tinkerbell has just hissed horrifically at the senior cat. Yeah, but senior cat has just carried on. And that's the end of that little... Little spat. Just, <laughs> it, it, it was a microsecond, but it was very rare for Aki to come into this room where we're recording when Tinkerbell is present. Yeah, so I think Aki is now starting to assert so, herself a bit absolutely. more. Absolutely. Which is good. She should do. Oh, hello. Uh, yeah. Oh, right. Tinkerbell, well, she's moved position, hasn't she? Because now she's sat on the floor but in the sort of gangway into the living room as if to say to Aki, right. now try. Yeah, come through at your peril. Wow. Okay. Well, that's deflected us somewhat. <laughs> we should say what we do. Yeah. Well, together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Thrillers. Mysteries. Crime. And suspense. And we're watching now as she adopts the crouching pose. This is Tinkerbell. She's 12 years old. She's a lightweight cat, not as well-built, perhaps, or upholstered as her rival, Aki. Aki, the established champion of the house, been here 15 years, or with us, for the duration, and they are eyeing each other suspiciously, these two competitors. I think my money is on Aki. Experience (laughs) trumps fluff. Yes, but I think the fluff ball has speed on her side. She's younger, and that uh, her lightning reflexes will will give her an advantage. But anyway, we digress. (laughs) Let's talk to uh, let's let's talk about what we're doing and uh, what the podcast is going to involve. We're going to be speaking to Paul Waters, and uh, he is a BBC freelance producer as well as an author of historic historic fiction, crime fiction set in Ireland around. 1950 odd and he's working on a uh, cozier novel isn't he he is he is so it's it was a really good conversation with paul look forward to that news wise so we're going to pick up on what we were talking about last week at length when i had a, a good old uh old-fashioned rant and of course that's not like this, you no well at this point then i realized i've left my phone in the kitchen and that's where the story is oops unless you can open it on messenger which i sent to you Oh, you no, I sent it on email. I sent it on email. email. Wasn't That's it? right. It might take me a while to find it. So, um... well, anyway, the the story we did last week is this ongoing issue of Find Away Voices, the audiobook distribution distribution platform that was bought by uh, Spotify about eighteen months ago, 
and the dramatic changes to one of the clauses in the contract, which were monstrous and monumental, uh, which basically basically gave them the rights to do with your work what they damn well pleased, including uh, clauses which allowed them to create uh, alternative versions of your characters in different scenarios and different formats. And it was met with horror by the author community. And many of us use Findaway because when we first started using them two and a half, three years ago, their offer was really good. Um, lots and lots of platforms, none of this nonsense. You could have your own shop on your website, which they provided you the technology to do. And also, the other factor I ought to mention is that you can get Chirp promotional deals run by BookBub, and they only exclusively work with Findaway Voices. So all of those factors combined made them the most attractive platform to go through. That has changed. And as I said last week, I was horrified. Well, we both were horrified. I was particularly strong on it. Well, it, it caused a storm. It really did. And lots of people cancelled their productions with Findaway as a result. And they hurriedly, within sort of 48 hours, announced that they were going to repeal some of the clauses. But the Society of Authors, the UK Organisation for Authors, has uh, stepped forward and said this week that they're still deeply concerned along with many Society of Authors members, that the new terms and phrasing included in a revised terms of use published by major audiobook distributor Findaway Voices by Spotify. The new terms gave Findaway Voices a range of new rights over creators' works, including permission to create derivative works from the audiobooks posted by creators to the platform without their consent or remuneration, and included a blanket waiver for moral rights. Oof. I mean... Pff. Yeah, right. Following an outcry from creators, Spotify acknowledged the confusion, as they're, they're inverted commas, confusion, and published a revised version of the offending section, which is 4B in their terms of use. But while the Society of Authors welcomes Spotify's acknowledgement of the issue and attempt to address it, we are still concerned with the wording. Their terms of use still refer to use of the audiobooks for training in connection with the promotion and marketing of the Spotify service. We urge Spotify to make it explicitly clear in their terms of use that no works will be used in the development of any type of generative artificial intelligence model or product without the creator's permission. We're also pleased to see confirmation that terms of use do not authorise Spotify to use audiobooks to create a new book, ebook, or audiobook, or to use user content to create a new machine-generated voice without your permission. However, their wording is too broad. Spotify must reinforce must reinforce it to make it clear that it covers all types of derivative works, including, for instance, podcasts. This latest issue comes only a few months after we raised concerns about the lack of communication from publishers with authors and agents about the streaming deals that all major book publishers have signed with Spotify. So that was this other change, which was 15 hours of free content for premium subscribers to Spotify in terms of audiobooks. Mm. So effectively, two short paperbacks worth of audiobooks a month for free. And this came out of nowhere. And there's been no clarity on how people are remunerated for it. And indeed, the major publishers, the big five, I'm sure they're referring to, didn't haven't revealed any of the contents of those deals either. Certainly haven't approached us. But... Though we're not a major publisher, but you know, it is 
Um, I think the Society of Authors is absolutely right. I think the new terms and conditions are still too broad. And if there was an alternative, and I have started discussing this with another company, for us to create a platform where we could distribute our audio books um, fairly and in complete uh, transparency, we would do it. Yes. Build a platform so that our audiobook listeners can get their audiobooks without going through these, frankly, piratical edifices like Audible and, um, spot, you know, find a way voices by Spotify because they're just, they're absolutely royally not even taking the mick anymore. It's not funny in any sense. It is horrific what they're trying to uh, pull over creators' eyes and the way that they're treating us. So... But then again, you just have to sort of think about the the technical challenges and the legal challenges that this takes. It's not something that even, um, let's say, a dozen independent companies got together. It would be very unlikely that we could get the resources together and build the infrastructure to do it. No, because you're basically building a company like Findaway. Yeah. and That takes millions. (laughs) Yes. It's it's an investment. Somebody would have to invest. Um, Yeah. Yeah. and who's to say you wouldn't get bought out and be treated like this again? So that, I'm glad that they are representing the voice of the community in this way. And, yeah. uh, but I'm still not convinced. But we're still looking at an alternative. What's the alternative? And I was looking at Authors Republic, which is another platform similar to, to Find A Way. And I don't think that their offer is any less. Well, it's less. It's less. Um, you know, uh, hucksterish um, and. You know, it doesn't feel like you're being robbed, but there's still enough ambiguity in the way that the the, the offer is made. Well, the thing about Findaway though is it it was a reasonable offer when we joined. Findaway. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you can't predict the future. You, no, you know, no, no, no. As a company, we may say we change to a different provider. That well, same could happen. That's the thing, and you know, the spirit in which Findaway set themselves up has been totally ripped away by Spotify's parent sort of company behavior and the way that they're they're pushing things but as i said last week you know spotify have a have a fantastic reputation for exploiting if fantastic is the right word um exploiting creators giving them the minimum they can get away with and they still don't make profits i mean spotify are just building up tons and tons their value is high but the fact is that it's it's a company that loses millions of pounds and they're just flailing around trying to find ways to make the model work. And it doesn't. So there we go. Anyway, right. So further stories. Yes. So to um, move on to something a little bit lighter. So Richard, Richard Osman, we do follow him a little bit in a kind of... Oh, I see the cover now. No. Oh. Down on the side. Oh, there. yeah. Okay. So this caught my eye because... Um, I'd been looking through the bookseller for news stories and I didn't see this one. And then I switched to The Guardian. This is the first one that came up. So Richard Osman, author of the Thursday Murder Club books, um, has decided... How many has he done of those? I know he's done three. Has he done four? Uh, well, three is what I know of as yeah, well. I'm not, okay. I'm not entirely sure. Anyway, he's going to ch- uh, change direction slightly. So he's staying within Cozy. Yeah. But he's um, writing a new series. So... It's going to be called We Solve Murders. That's the name of the series. First book publishing in autumn. 
uh, introduces uh, father-in-law and daughter-in-law detective duo Steve and Amy Wheeler. So it's the name of the detective agency. We solve murders. It's a good name for the detective agency. Um, and on the front cover, as you've just pointed out, um, there is a cat. Yes, the silhouette of a, of a cat set against the sort of setting sun, sitting on a log by the look of it. It's quite small, the image. I think that's a gun barrel. No, it's a gun barrel. It looks like a log from this distance, but you're right. I can see that it's got a sight on the end of it. So it's a very simple cover. It's very much more, you know, it's, it's about the font they've chosen as opposed to really the imagery. It's on a cream background similar to the Thursday Murder Club's yeah, sort it, of look. It's almost like slightly less cosy. It, it's it's kind yeah. of like cosy thriller. Well, I, I, think it. It, I think it has a certain echo of the way that covers were for these sort of books, say, in the 60s and yes, 70s. I think that's what they are um, emulating there. Right. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it? Cats. Cats well, work for well, crime. Well, I mean, okay, so... This is significant because I'm sure that the sales of the whatever book it was in the series dipped. That um, you know the the novelty of Richard Osman, who is you know a, a beloved television figure, you know uh, well bet by everybody, nice bloke, you know nice nerdy bloke basically yeah and and i have a copy of the thursday murder club i think there are a lot of people who bought we, 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 yeah, lots the first of, one. Oh yeah sure and then you know in your case you got halfway through it and thought it wasn't brilliant and i think that there has been diminishing returns so this is a change he is saying that the thursday murder club characters are coming back in 2025 but he's giving them a rest and yeah. trying this out and i don't blame him in a way you know it's yeah he's in a good position isn't he he knows he's going to sell books yes um so yes, he, he can be creatively but this, the reason we're talking about it is because he, his books, you know, the, the impact of it becoming the best-selling book of the last umpteen years, fiction book, mm. um, it gave a new impetus to cosy crime books in the UK in a massive way. In fact, worldwide, let's be honest. It's, it's done quite well in, in the States as well. And a lot of people have moved into that sphere the cover design of those books were copied a gazillion times. Absolutely, yeah. By traditional publishers and indies alike. You know, if you did a cosy crime, the chances are, you know, 50% of the titles seem to go in that direction in cover design. And so that cat thing <laughs> um, on top of a gun barrel is going to be aped. Again, it's going to be the the next thing that takes over. Now, of course, we have a slight advantage in that our, our logo is a cat, um, but <laughs> not in that way. I mean, we we we, we don't, you know, it, it'll be interesting. But I imagine, and we don't really have a strong, cosy presence currently. No. And it's still something that we would, you know, consider, um, even though our, we're close for submissions, we, we recognise that it is the area of our portfolio of crime books that needs to be... Could, could do with strengthening, so we put it that yeah. way. And so, therefore, you would be in this position where you know, can imagine the silhouette of the Hobart cats, one of the two, um, on the cover. I mean, actually, Tinkerbell would fit perfectly because she's the right colour for that sort of monographic sort she of is. scheme. So, yes, and, and she'd be good at fighting crime too. I think she would, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the thing about her, she's stealthy, exactly. That's what I mean. She's stealthy, she's fast, she's nimble, yeah. You don't know she's there until she's there. And Whereas with Aki, she announced it half you know, half a mile away you can hear Aki. 
No matter what Aki does, she has to, is accompanied by with an absolute full volume vocal yes, performance, isn't so, it? Yeah, As she did. Aki wouldn't be our natural choice of a no. crime fighting cat or a crime committing crat. Crat, indeed. Oh, cr- yeah. <laughs> did you say crat? Yeah, I think you did say crat. I didn't. Anyway, sure, swear word in, in old English or something. Anyway, so that's is. an interesting that that is a big development in the market, and he's doing Harrogate. I saw this week that they've announced the the key people who are going to Harrogate. Oh, okay. And so Richard Osman's the big one. Um, and it's a lot of the usual suspects. Yeah. And as I, ever. I don't... I, I quite like the idea of Richard Osman, the crime writer. I mean, I, it wasn't my sort of book. It was It was well written. It was fine. It was in the middle of the road. You know, it was funny, humorous, great characters. It appeals to a certain type of reader yeah. and, and, and he, he's nailed it. And it's the reader who enjoyed Pointless. Uh, as a TV show, and indeed Richard Osman's House of Games. You know, he is a very creative guy. He has been at the forefront of British television format creation for a very long time. And, um, you know, you don't hear a bad word about him. No. You don't You don't hear, oh, you know, privately, he's, an, he's a whatever. No. Uh, which is... He tolerated me giving him a hope. He mug. did, he did, yeah. He'd just been to Betty, so he was happy. <laughs> Right, and finally, um, our, our third story before we get to our interview with Paul is... Yeah, so it's a bit more serious. Um, it's very serious, I it think. It is very serious. So uh, C-I-L-I-P, I don't know if you say... That's the Library Silip. and Information Association, <laughs> Killip or... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know how so, they kind of I mean, themselves. Yeah, they're quite well known. Um, they have um, been on the case with the problem of um, diminishing library services. Yeah. So they've decided to set up a libraries at risk monitor Mm. with the aim of providing a resource for the library sector and the public so that people can keep track of changes across the uk in library services yes and almost sort of if there's a library in jeopardy the public can perhaps come together to do something um because Mm. you know so far libraries have been in jeopardy and have been closing and it's almost too late once you get to the point where the library is about to close there's not much anyone can do um so i think you know it's it's trying to stop that and to support libraries even better um because this is something i didn't know about but that in 1964 there was a public libraries and museums act which meant that councils have a statute statutory statutory (laughs) statutory yes duty to provide comprehensive and efficient library services under the act and um some of them have been failing to do that Mm. And so, um, well, they're not being held to 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 book about that. Mm. But I, you, you know, I have some sympathy for their position because they have a lot of statutory obligations which they can't afford to fulfil in, you know, life and death kind of yeah, things I, like social care. I know, and it's not their fault. I don't blame councils at all. Um, I, I feel very I mean, just, sorry for them. Yeah, I do. Well, I mean, you know, they have been hollowed out because public spending has been squeezed for umpteen years recently and and uh, councils have borne the brunt of it i mean that you know there's always complaints when council taxes rise by x amount and in birmingham for instance just down the road from us 30 miles away or so um their council taxes are, are due to go up 10 percent per year for the next two years because effectively the council is bankrupt um and they are talking about switching off street lights for instance to save money it's essentials um, they're not going to spend any money on the roads in Birmingham. And, you know, they have a fair few of those. Um, 
and quite major sort of trunk routes. And although those major trunk routes are paid for directly by the government, everything else alongside it is 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 the responsibility of Birmingham City Council. So they're having to cut back essential services, and in that environment, that's when libraries get the squeeze um, horrifically. Um, badly but you know again down the road from us about what eight miles away or so telford mm. their central library is amazing um i went there a few weeks ago and it was brilliant as a community resource not just the the collection was relatively modest i would say but all the other ancillary things that they did in terms of supporting the community and also the opportunity for people to access the internet and all sorts of things that were just perfect and that's how libraries have had to adapt. And, and if you go to Manchester Central Library, which is a magnificent building, mm. sort of rotunda on St. Peter's Square, that had an enormous amount of money spent on it. It was completely, it was shut for two, nearly three years to be revamped. And it is the most extraordinary place to visit. I, I highly recommend it if you love books because they've taken it into the 21st century in, in the ways that they've opened up their collections to people and, and made things accessible. Yes. And the, the the local interest section is incredibly busy. Um, and there were, I mean, I went in there a few months ago and there were probably 40 or 50 people in the local history section, completely full, researching all sorts of things. And, you know, a lot of it's family histories, which, of course, has become a big industry. But the number of librarians that were assisting people in their research was inspiring. It was incredible. And around that area, they have loads of artifacts and documents and films and things they preserved and interviews with people from 100 years ago, you know, recordings of people also talking about Manchester and its history. It is brilliant. And that is, so, you know, libraries can be amazing. They, they can. But so, they... Like, like bank branches, they're shutting. If they're, you know, the big ones are great, but it's the ones that are in local communities that are shutting. Yeah, I, I don't know if you know this, but there is a mobile library that comes to Norbury every week. Have you seen it? Uh, I have seen it, yeah. 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 So, and, I mean, you know, so services like that as well, they're, they're probably in jeopardy too because the council has to pay for that, the person to do that and go around all the villages. and. Yeah. But no, I, see, no. I always see people going into that mobile library. Oh, it's, you know, again, it's one of the few things that binds people together in, in a village like Norbury, which is tiny. You know, there's one pub at the at the junction and uh, the, the church, and that's about it in terms of things that bind. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately, life is very, it doesn't have much value if you don't have community. No. And libraries provide an enormous focus of that. Oh, and they it's, it's just tragic that we're in this situation, um, that they're having to create a register to point out where libraries are in in jeopardy yeah and to get public to you know help yeah to engage with the with the whole process yeah. anyway um right that's our new section so let us talk to paul waters and uh, paul is uh his first book blackwater town came out a few years ago three or four years ago and um but he has had the most extraordinary eclectic and you know life um got in some amazing achievements, particularly working for the BBC World Service. But, you know, essentially, he's one of those people who has, allows curiosity to take him into places he's where like others would... like a cat. Would, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't dare to go. 
And I think mm. that, you know, he's from Northern Ireland originally. He just has, um, you know, as, we, as you'll discover from this interview, a, a, a joy of saying, okay, someone says I can't do something. Well, that's an invitation uh, to go and do it. <laughs> he is like a cat. Yeah. So we were delighted to speak to Paul Waters. What a delight it is to be joined by Paul Waters on the Hobcast Book Show. Welcome. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure. And you are sat in one of the hallowed halls of Old Broadcasting House, which um, always gives me a frisson every time I walk in there. Even though they messed it up and modernised it, it is still one of the great buildings in London, in my opinion. Are there a lot of ghosts there, though? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I certainly feel a chill running down my back at the minute because this is one of the, the less modernised parts. It's the particular little studio I'm in has two holes in the ceiling, one of which is above me. So the air is certainly keeping me refreshed as it rushes through. <laughs> and uh, so if you see me shivering, that's why. Not from fear of your questions, I hope. Well, I well, hope not. I hope not. But you are you're a pro. <laughs> I mean, you not only have your own podcast, but of course you are uh, a broadcaster and uh, producer and all sorts of things you've done in your life. So Been there, uh, done that, yeah, though, a few times. Yeah, you, you, you face <laughs> real things. danger. As opposed to my sort of flying a, a BBC desk, which, which you know, brought its own dangers, I suppose. But mm. in terms of ghosts, yes, there are. Because um, if I remember rightly, during the World War II, the, the building you're in was hit by bombs and someone was killed while they were still broadcast. Oh, that's I know that. I know that. Well, there are recordings of, you know, people broadcasting, looking out over London during the Blitz. And the building is, it's... This studio doesn't fit into that, but the, the the live studios are inside an inner core. So they have the offices around the outside and then an inner core with the studios. And they thought that would protect them, I guess, a, a little bit from the Luftwaffe. That wasn't the original idea, but from traffic noise. But they forgot about the London Underground. Yes, so ah. famously. Oh, that's yeah. yeah, so um, sound was coming up from the outside. Although there are studios around the edges that, I mean, people record everywhere and Sound quality these days, my goodness, things have declined, and also this room is freezing. Yeah, um, no, it, it, but it's still an extraordinary building, especially if you go the further down you go, the more authentic it feels, I think. Mm. But uh, anyway, look, we'll, we'll, we could we could uh talk BBC stuff all the way through. Well, I'll um, tell you one if, thing about it. Um, on my first week here, I met John Peel in the corridors, um, who I you know grew up listening to late uh, at night. And he was lost and he asked me the way somewhere. And I thought, oh, wow, this is John Peel. I'm so excited. So I thought, oh, yeah, I can show you the way there. And I showed him. And I thought, this is a bit mad. He's been here for decades. You'd think yeah. he'd know his way around by now. But Maybe he, he doesn't a have bit... a sense of direction. You never know. Yeah, he was like a little mole, only interested <laughs> in music, not his surroundings, his physical surroundings. So yeah, was exactly. So a lot a of highlight for me. Have... Creative people can be a bit like that, can't they? Sort of in their own world of of thoughts and not thinking about where they're going she mm. says speaking from, not from experience at all <laughs> yeah <laughs> no i mean he would have been more familiar with egton house which was uh, the home of radio one for for years and they all had these tiny offices um which were stuffed full of records and papers and whatever but they were tiny they were like little cubicles um the one time i visited before it that shut and then they moved again but anyway i mean you know it's it's resonant with with it has a vibe that building and i think sometimes um 
I think we talk about this quite a lot, actually, uh, on this podcast, is how a place can have an impact on your creative process. And I guess it, it, in terms of your writing, is that the case for you? Do you do find a, is there a particular spot that you find inspirational or do you just do it on the hoof? I've tried different ways. Probably I do most of it sitting in a spare bedroom at home, you know, in inverted commas, my office, which is lined with books, books piled up on the floor, books everywhere. So to try and find room to write one is a, a struggle. I've tried to write in other places, like in my local deli, in pubs, on trains, anywhere. And and I do sometimes on, you know, think I, I should snatch this moment and use it constructively on, on the back of envelopes and that sort of thing. And uh, but most of the time I'm I'm in the room trying not to look out the window and be distracted, trying to focus because I am so very, very, very easily distracted. And uh, that's a problem. So if it's anywhere too inspiring, then I might be inspired and distracted. That's interesting, is it? Because I would find it much harder to do to be creative and productive in a quiet room. I trains fantastic i love train travel and yeah and cafes and stuff and like um during lockdown the one time i tried to write a book and never finished it i would write snippets in the tesco queue when you had the trolleys all distance from each other good idea i feel guilty about taking up a seat for too long in a cafe uh, <laughs> if i'm just sitting there and not you know i feel i have to gonna buy an inordinate amount of tea and I suppose going to places and then looking back or thinking back on them inspires me a bit more. That's the way I do it. Right. But, I mean, you mentioned how easily distracted you are. And when I when we um, looked at your book biography, I mean, you have done so many different things um, and been to so many different places. Is that an imperative for you is that you know you're you're sort of do you have a wanderlust do you have a uh, you know uh, i did used to have yeah yeah. the idea that there's the world is out there and so much to see and also i thought it's my duty to my children not to have a really boring life so i should do lots of interesting things so i can tell them about it and encourage them to do it and and they have all both gone interesting places and um i i yeah i'm nosy and like to see places so if if i was ever sent anywhere for work i would always ensure that i did not return at the end of the job and went off wandering and hanging out with people and just having interesting conversations and going weird places because that's then how you experience life i guess Mm. and it has been fun i do a bit less of it now because um i don't know climate emergency guilt and not just you know flying here and there and also and my wife is from india so um when we do go places it's usually either ireland or india which is not much of a limitation because india i guess is the equivalent of europe so there are many many places there i haven't been and um there's lots to explore there yeah but you've been i mean you know i think nature of the job has changed a bit hasn't it in terms of commissioners aren't paying people to go out to see things in person you don't need to as much do you well no but i mean i think that culturally 
that has changed. And I, I noticed that, I mean, cause I was a manager for with BBC world service for 10 years and, um, you know, initially we had the money to go and I said, look, if somebody had a good idea, I'd send them somewhere. Yeah. And that just dried up. And increasingly that's the case. I mean, I, I guess that's one of the, one of the things that's in play here, is it? Yeah, there is less money. And, and also it used to be that you, we would never do something like we're doing now, speaking over zoom or remotely, you'd want to go there or yeah. get somebody into a studio and then everything changed. And now this is the norm uh, and it is a shame in a way i suppose another thing is there's more of a tendency to get local people to do things rather than sending yes. in an outsider like a a, a european uh, and that's a good thing but i i do miss it the days of conducting football crowds in zimbabwe or <laughs> dicing with the royal guards at in swaziland or eswatini as it is now or i don't know just getting into trouble in different places you know bribing romanian soldiers for petrol after the revolution things like that and then those are all thank goodness very happy days for me and running around being stupid taking risks does it do you tell these stories to your children and do they do they go oh my god that's amazing or do they go oh god no (laughs) that's being embarrassing um well sometimes uh they have decided that oh no there's a no entry sign i presume that means we have to go that way um you know any no entry sign means cross it and uh i guess they've gone through the stages of being you know embarrassed and wanting to stick to the rules and be law-abiding and then getting to another stage and thinking, yeah, well, you know, maybe we don't have to. And so I've been a bad influence. I'm happy to have been a bad influence in that way. And, uh, yeah, it's fun. What's the worst that can happen? Don't think about that. That's a good motto to live by, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you sort of reminded me of all the hustle that you have to have to operate in some of these countries. I mean, I... um, thinking back to my time in 2000 when I went to the African Cup of Nations in Nigeria and the level of dodges and and uh, officialdom, officialdom I had to sort of bribe my way past to get just the basic job done. Didn't oh. you have to pay someone for toilet paper or someone? Uh, no, just around. access to the toilet. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a, vi- a VIP, like right yeah. <laughs> VIP fee to, to to use the toilet. Um, and he wasn't very well state. either, so it was a very expensive trip. <laughs> <laughs> it really was and try and explain that to uh, bbc expenses um you know, where, where i, I think that's known went. as a, a facilities fee mm. um sure that's probably what you called it I, yeah. it's it's yeah things were always a little bit flexible so i started I, I did worked in some newspapers and pirate radio and things like that but when i joined the bbc i was based in belfast and doing television and radio reporting there and I was, you know, young and junior, but sometimes I was in unfortunate situations, riots and standoffs and this, that and the other. And I had no protection, no guidance, no safety advice whatsoever, except common sense. And I was from there, so I could crisscross and do things. With hindsight, I think, well, that was unwise. But then I did lots of unwise things when I wasn't employed by the BBC. As soon as I 
transferred to work for a national network, it was like public order training, aka riot training, and then hazardous environment, hostile yep. environment training or hazardous environment training. You know, what if you were ambushed by guerrillas? And it was great because I could, you know, distinguish all the, the firearms and, oh, that sounds like a this, that and the other. And, but I never really used it. So when I was in those situations, nobody cared. And it was only afterwards. So I thought, I take all that with a pinch of salt and a lot of, you know, official safety advices show, I think, and for, you know, going through the motions. And um, for instance, I did a, a series of programs from Cuba, which was the first time the BBC had, had done that. That was for... Yeah. Um, uh, Radio 5 Live, in fact. and um, But to do it, we'd kind of got permission from the Cuban authorities and they'd got a studio for us. But when we turned up, none of it worked. But luckily, I had smuggled a satellite dish in and they hadn't caught me. Well, you know, I wasn't supposed to do that. And I would have gotten in trouble if they'd found me because they just jailed some Czech journalists shortly beforehand. And... Anyway, we came to an accommodation at the end of the day and everything went fine. And But, I mean, that was against the rules of the BBC, yes. never mind, you know, the Cuban authorities. But what can you do? Just have to, you know, make these leaps. Mm. No, that's true. And and, and I had, uh, I, I sort of wore two hats, really. When I was a boss, I had to enforce, you know, the, if BBC mm. Safety says X, you can't do it. Then I, I was the one having to tell my staff, you know, you can't go into the Ashatila refugee camp because Jeremy Bowen's vehicles have been set fire to last week. You know, you can't go in. Um, stuff like and that. I, I would have been the one saying, yeah, OK, <clears throat> lies, lies. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And then, you know, equally, I did a lot of dodgy things, um, especially in local uh, when I was starting out in, in Sussex and Surrey. Um just just something to to you know get access to something um you know i didn't do my risk assessments and i didn't you know getting on a speedway bike when i've never ridden a motorbike it's pretty dumb <laughs> wow but it was a great piece to camera so it had to be done um but you know you could, you, you could have been a, a famous clip. A job, so. yeah. but but i think i think what i was going to lead round to is this sense that you'll do anything for the story and for the audience and in a, in a way that ties nicely into into the what you do for your writing as well but mm. in your in your core you strike me as Paul as somebody who is a natural storyteller well i hope so yeah. I, I feel <laughs> I feel uh, different senses of responsibility. Uh, I guess I one reason I got into broadcasting was to help tell people stories who wouldn't have access to a platform yeah. to do that. And then, uh, and that comes with a lot of responsibility. You want to be accurate, but also true to the spirit of what they're trying to convey. And then in writing, I also feel some sense of responsibility if you're writing you know within living memory anything set within living memory you want to kind of be fair to the spirit of people and communities who are involved the difference then the thing that i find more most challenging was telling my own stories as in, you know making up and saying what i wanted to say rather than previously i tried to keep myself out of it 
and I could be dealing with people with whom I profoundly disagreed, but I really wanted to let them have access and say what they wanted to say because I, I thought, you know, communication sharing is a, is a good thing. And, uh, and and often, mostly it is, I suppose, I, but I keep myself out of it. But when you're writing fiction or anything, I guess, you um, you have to put yourself in it and you're revealing stuff about yourself all the time and what you think. And and that's uh, that felt slightly odd at first and I had to, you know, get over that. But then, of course, it's really liberating because you can target people you hate make them nasty characters and who come to bad ends and <laughs> and and have a laugh uh so i've got a book um a new series set in india because my wife was saying oh we're here so much why don't you write something here so i've written this uh kind of cozy crime irish indian crossover and uh the first one is currently called murder in moonlit square which is the translation of a an old historic part of Delhi called Chandni Chok. That, that means kind of moonlit, moonlit or moonlight and then square or place. And in it, I go off in various little... Oh, the, So the two main characters are who solve the mysteries are a Delhi hotel owner and an elderly Irish nun. And <laughs> anyway, that gives me the opportunity to go on about how much I don't like or how much she doesn't like Indian tea and how Irish tea is the best even though we don't grow it. And <laughs> yeah. it always annoys Indians when I go on about the terrible tea they make. Like they like putting in the milk and heating in the whole thing up together. And uh, it's really awful. And so you can have little personal rants in your books. Uh, people might be thinking, oh, that's a bit random for that character. Oh, but it's another side to them. Interesting. But really. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're very random. And actually it's just you. <laughs> it's just my hobby horse. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's brilliant. And we look forward to that. So that's a new series. Your previous um, published novel was Blackwater Down. Uh, came out four years ago now, around about. Gosh, was lockdown. It? It, it came out during lockdown anyway. Yeah. And so it was all going well. And then lockdown comes along and the bookshops are all closed. So what to do? I thought this is I'm not going to let this rest. I've you know, gone to all the trouble of writing it. It's been published, you know, looks good. So I was thinking, where can it be sold? So not all shops were closed. Some that were like essential things or do um, you just buy things over there? the first to sell copies of it. So it's the first and so far only book they've ever sold, uh, you know, selling cups of tea and buns and cake and that sort of thing. And copies of my book. And then there was uh, there was a beer shop and it used to do uh, during lockdown. It was kind of a, a tap room and people would usually come and sit inside and drink. But they couldn't do that because of the lockdown conditions. So they would send out parcels uh, or shipments of beer to people. And then they would all get together on Zoom and drink interesting oh, beer from different parts of the world and compare tasting notes. Just get pissed together online. So I join that and they would you know drink a beer and i'd read a bit of the book and then they and somebody would say oh yeah i know that place i was stationed there in the paratroopers and uh, i said oh yeah i walked past your fort as a little boy and this sort of thing and uh and then there was a garden center started selling them anywhere that was actually open and then thankfully bookshops reopened and they were able to get in there but you know it was not ideal 
Mm-hmm. And but you, you know, you or sometimes the open air craft markets do a stall there and, and sell them. And the good thing about that is, um, it, in a bookshop, I suppose people look you know through all the hundreds of books on the shelves and think, what will I choose? But if it's an open air craft or farmers market, they don't have much to choose from when it comes to books, except me no. telling them how their lovely green. Green matches the cover of my book. Well, that's that's books and chutney. We ought to think about that. Um, <laughs> we did do a Christmas yeah, fair. My, my son's school. We did a Christmas yeah. fair, I and mean, we sold mm. we sold some books to the head teacher, which was great, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, <laughs> and you get to that's... chat to people and talk about stuff, and and it, it, very odd things um, appeal to people. Like, um, I one of the cover quotes I have is from Peter May, and I found Chinese people. Chinese students, they were going, oh, wow, Peter May, because he has a series set in China. And they were particularly excited about that, which was great. Oh, that's amazing. Isn't yeah. It? And, and Frederick Forsyth as well. Um, oh, yeah, that's very, very good. Yes. So he absolutely. says something nice about it. That's great. Because people would say, who on earth are you? Oh, he likes you. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, you Frederick must be all right Forsyth. if he likes, he likes it. It, <laughs> it does exactly, make a yeah. difference. Yeah, we, we, sure. we were lucky. We got Stephen Fry to comment on one of our books. And then... It, it's great, isn't it? Because everyone knows who Stephen Fry is, and they think, "Well, Stephen Fry read it; he liked it. <laughs> maybe it's okay." <laughs> yeah, I think actually, maybe I should find somebody else, like the equivalent of Stephen Fry, but maybe Stephen with a V, and people would presume it's the famous Stephen Fry. Yeah, yes. just a random but, uh, yeah, Stephen might be my Fry who owns a baker's or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, no, brilliant. I mean, so what did you? Um learn from 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 writing that that first one because that was it's a historical uh yeah. novel it's set in what 1950s ireland yeah. um yeah. and you know you, it echoes of of the troubles that you reported on are playing into this yeah. I mean, but this is before yeah. you know the british army moves yeah. in in you know huge numbers to northern ireland um mm. that you lived through so um the research in that was that was that painstaking difficult? Uh, uh, I probably did too much research. Uh, so one of the pitfalls of writing is research is so tempting. You go off on these interesting highways and byways. And I was a mixture of too much research and being quite casual. The reason I, it's called Blackwater Town is it's set in a mainly around a village called Blackwater Town. But it could have been set in other villages, but I just kind of quite liked it sounded more ominous, Blackwater Town. Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah, there was that, Blackwater that. Consulting at the time as well, you know, in Iraq. And so that was kind of an arbitrary, I don't know, decision by me. Although it is a real place and, and I've been there many times and it is near the border. And then um, the research, I've, yeah, I did lots of research and some of it is this kind of silly things almost like some, say somebody's going to start a car start the car you think oh gosh how would they have started the car yeah and it might be yeah. it might be an old car not the latest car do they is it a key is it something else do they have a starting handle and you can sort of try and work that out but then if it's not that important or pivotal you can probably just say he started the car and not worry about any of those yeah. details yeah, yeah. unless you're going to hit somebody over the head with the starting handle what does it matter or I'd found things like what songs people were listening to or what film would be in the local cinema difficult because if, uh, you know, if you look up 
you know, research what film came out. In America, it'll be at this date. Then it'll come to England, to London, the provinces of England. Eventually, it'll come to Belfast. But then the countryside outside Belfast, it could be a couple of years later, bro. So trying to work out what would have been there when. And then... um, it sets in an insurgency. The book is this, yes. this this police. The main character is a Catholic police officer, which is unusual because it's mainly Protestant. So he's seen as a bit of a traitor to Irish Catholic nationalists, but also viewed with suspicion by his Protestant colleagues as a potential traitor or spy. So he has a, a very turbulent week during the book and uncovers all these secrets, falls in love, does heroic things, does reprehensible things. But, um, and, you know, people do, there's, a you know, strong language and, you know, quite extreme attitudes in it. And I was, in my research, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't caricaturing people and exaggerating what people would have really said. Obviously, it's all fiction. Um, although based on true stories I heard from yeah. relations who were in the police then, but I didn't want to caricature a community. So I was looking through records of townlands and that sort of thing to find out what people would and did say at that sort of time. So if, I mean, at one point there's a, a politician who probably doesn't really believe what he's saying, but he's trying to appeal to what he thinks are an extreme anti-Catholic feeling in, in the place where he's going to be get, uh, get elected. And he's saying, you know, the only good Catholic is a dead one. And I thought, that's like a really extreme thing to say. And I thought, I can't say that. But then, of course, I found people saying it in those circumstances. I thought, oh, that's fine then. Great. And then how people react to it is up to me. And they don't necessarily react happily. Uh, his Protestant audience don't necessarily approve, of course. And um, But the idea of, um, I suppose, kind of treating people fairly especially as I was brought up a Catholic. So I felt more relaxed about sticking the boot into Catholics and more anxious and concerned about being fair to whoever I wasn't. And um, yes, that's a bit of a tightrope, I guess. And hopefully it worked. I've only had one threat of violence off the back of it, but that was about how the book ends. Uh, a beta reader said to me, yeah, I really like it, but, if you don't change the ending, I will come over and punch you in the face. Obviously, That's fairly mild anyway, punch in the face, isn't it? It's not a, no, it's not a kneecapping or anything like that, no. No, <laughs> obviously I kept the ending because I thought, yeah, that's uh, prompting a reaction. Yeah, that's come good. on, bring it on. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely staying. So, but, I mean, that moving was, to that Cozy, like that's a... That's a a, a departure. A, a departure. A, a moving into, into a different territory. I mean, is, is that is that a fair way to describe it? Or? Uh, yeah, I thought I was thinking that uh, I remember reading Alexander McCall Smith, the number one ladies detective agency, years ago, and in his Botswana set books. Yeah, uh, as far as I know, no one ever dies. There's sometimes I remember one that was a child kidnapped and you know might be cut up and used for mooty, but. Spoiler alert, nobody dies. <laughs> and uh, and people have their, you know, trials and tribulations. But it's more, I, I thought, you know, so many terrible things happen in the world. Is it possible to 
write without adding to that just for a change, even though I love crime fiction and that's great. So I thought about trying to write something cozier and happier. And initially, in mine, in Murder in Moonlit Square, nobody died. Uh, Or nobody died violently anyway. Anyway, that changed. (laughs) Because people kept saying, yeah, but who gets murdered? Who gets murdered? It's like, oh, God, all right. Okay, fine, fine. The public are baying for blood. I'm going to give them what they want. Like in Gladiator, are you not entertained? (laughs) Okay, so, uh, yeah, there is murder in that. But, you know, people are more upbeat and happy and looking for goodness in the world, even if they encounter badness bad tea and bad tea yeah Mm. so you say it's a working title at the moment what what stage are you at with it in terms of you know it's on it's on on submission right so um but you know what publishers are like they might say lovely i don't know what you're talking about i know they might say this is wonderful exactly the way it is or they might say don't like that title Start and again. I think it's a great title, I, I, you know, regardless. But I mean, you know, that's just just my initial reaction. Um, now, your podcast, yeah. which uh, you, you co-host a podcast. Um, so do has I. Had, yes, you do. Uh, <laughs> has had the most amazing cast list of, of authors. We, we, we have some in common as well, didn't we, Mina? Yeah, one or two. One or two, Vazim Khan and, 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 and others. But I, I want to bore in on um, one of your more recent guests uh, in Jeffrey Archer because we've talked uh-huh. about him on a two or three occasions <laughs> in this podcast. Yeah. Uh, I can't help it. Um, you know, he's he's got a certain demonic magnetism that draws me to him because yeah. I'm originally from Cambridge and he is a significant figure in the Cambridge mm. uh, sure. literary scene. And as I've told this other story on the podcast before, I'll just skim over it a bit but on one occasion I was working for Heifer's bookshop he came storming in to say why were his books in the front window um, and the next day they were <laughs> <laughs> but uh, from I mean looking at Jeffrey and all the other authors you've spoken to how much has that fed into your writing process and storytelling process well uh, it has done it has done uh, it's been I guess a privilege to hear how these people do it and uh some of the lessons are are unpalatable so ajay chowdhury for instance he uh, he's about to retire but is his writing job and his um you know high-tech consulting job an investment job and so he gets up at around four in the morning and writes for a bit you know, he starts, you know, doing the New York Times crossword and solving Wordle and then, uh, you know, writing for a few hours. And so that influenced what I did. I thought the only way I'm going to be able to work and earn some money and write is by drinking less. <laughs> so he also, he doesn't drink particularly. So so I started switching to non-alcoholic beer and that sort of thing. And... um getting up earlier to write before I went to work. And that has had, that was how I was able to finish the Indian book. Um, but, you know, it's horrible to hear things like that because who wants to do that? You know, mm. get up really early. It's awful. Jeffrey mm, uh, Archer, exactly. Jeffrey Archer was interesting in that 
about how he, uh, I was going to say steals stories, not so much that, but listens, I guess. And so he was talking about, he was, he was on a cruise and sitting beside someone there saying, oh, I've got an idea for a story. And he his heart sank. I uh, thought, oh, no. But then it was his current, most recent one about an attempt to steal the crown jewels. And they said, actually, I used to work in that area and this is how I do it. I thought, that's brilliant. That would work. Right, I'm having that. And I guess he stealing is too strong way of doing it. But the idea it's being of... a magpie, isn't it? Well, I mean, a magpie. We mm. used, I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's still a, a, a phrase, but when I was a full-time journalist, um, we talk about lifting something. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I lifted that from a, you know, if you confess that it was from a newspaper or something that, you know, and lifted. I like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Because I mean, you know, legit, well, this is awful really, but I mean, in the broadcast world. Yeah. I mean, the local paper when I was a local journalist was, would come out on a Thursday and we would try and ration what they dug out and keep mm. it going over the week on air. And, you know, mm. so lifting was, was probably the right verb for it really. But, I suppose, yeah, I suppose, and you can attribute or acknowledge in your acknowledgements or, or whatever, which is fine, I think. Um, but yeah. It's nice to do that. I've got um, on, on, I've got various personal links to the Indian book. And so two of them, I'll tell you about one, the, uh, the hotel owner character. It's kind of based on somebody I know. And that's a conversation I'll have to have it's in right. with a hotel owner in Delhi. Uh, and, you know, I'm nice about him. So that, that's okay. He's a, he's a goodie, one of the main protagonists. Okay. But it may come as a little bit of a surprise to him to think that, oh, yeah, when I showed him around a hotel for research, that he didn't just take the hotel but me. And <laughs> the, the nun then is, is kind of based on a relation of mine who went – to like, I suppose, an auntie sort of person who um, became a nun, did all her career in India, ended up running one of the main colleges in Delhi and hanging out with the Gandhis and all prominent people. But in her first um, posting, she was at a school in Pune where she taught my wife's mother and her two sisters. This only came to light, you know, decades later, when somebody said, oh, you're marrying this woman from India. And I said, oh, yeah, we had somebody in the family who went to India, which I hadn't heard of before. And then, oh, yeah, you know, here's her history. I thought, oh, that's a good coincidence. Mm. So um, I also thought that's a backstory I can exploit. So Absolutely. when people say, yeah. why are you writing this book? First of all, I can hide behind my wife and then hide behind my uh, my auntie. And that say, was that's... my next question, actually, you know, in terms of in the current climate where people are laying, I mean, not everybody. And if you talk to someone like, uh, you know, Abhi Mukherjee or, or, or Basim Khan, they're very relaxed about it. Um, mm. But that isn't always the case uh, in the current yeah. climate that, you know, people are saying, well, you know, you're writing about my country. You, you don't, you know, you're an outsider. And that mm. and my culture and my people and my race. And that yeah. is yeah, and you say you're hiding behind you. Know, no, well, I think. I, I mean, I think there is. It is valid for people to raise it up to a point. I know, you know, growing up in Belfast, 
people would come and misrepresent, you know, parachute in and fly away again and misrepresent things and kind of exploit it. Um, on the other hand, I, I, I suppose you have to do your homework and maybe have a, a deeper link to the place and go there and spend time and, and, and not just drop in and out. And I also think that in the same way as Zimbabwean authors were saying to me, what, am I supposed to only write stories set in Harare? Can I not set anything in the United States? Or am I not allowed to leave my country? And other people were saying, ah, well, yeah, true enough. And if they're allowed to do it, I don't just have to write everything set in Ireland. Mm. And, you know, we can all go on flights of fancy and imagination. But I suppose you'd want it to be respectful or maybe deliberately disrespectful, if, if that's what you want to do, but kind of good and properly researched and you've taken care over it. Yeah. And, you know, I've got a, you know, a critic in the house who's going to pull me up on anything <laughs> that I go wrong. I, I, so I've had lots of Indian readers from different parts of the country read what I've written. And uh, they've been happy saying, oh, good, and you don't have, you know, I was wandering through every scene and that sort of thing. But a thing I found challenging was people's names because yeah. in in the names are so complicated there because you have different religions, you have different kind of castes, yeah. you have different parts of the country, you have names that in some parts of the country are male names, some others they're female names, in others they could be either. And you can so easily um, get it wrong or else if you just choose to give someone a name, you've actually given them loads of identity and, and background without even realizing it. So you have to think, is that what you want to do? Will that work? And uh, it's a minefield. And also it's hard to check it because somebody in Delhi will be saying, that's all fine. Yeah. Then somebody in Kolkata will be saying, Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> that, that would That would never happen. And, Somebody down south would have a different opinion. So it's a bit like writing a European book and expecting yes, Portuguese good... and Norwegians to think the same thing. Mm. And um, But it's fun as well. A challenge. A, challenge, a fun challenge. <laughs> Absolutely. It really is. Well, look, talking about fun challenges, I think we've reached that point where... Uh, oh, that's not a fun challenge. Yeah. We reach mm. the point where we delve into the mind of Rebecca and Rebecca's random question. So, oh, is that the time? I must go. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not allowed out yet. Okay. So, like I think I said earlier that the question came to me in the kitchen and I was making my breakfast, which was egg on toast. And I was using the crust of the bread mm. as the toast and I burnt the crust. And his face was like, why would you eat that? And I want to know, so my question is, is there anything that most people would throw away that you love to eat? So for me, it's burnt crusts. Oh, okay. Well, I would eat the rind of cheese, I suppose, but maybe lots of people do that. I don't know. I don't like the rind of cheese. No, the I'd dry bit. I'd probably eat, uh, I'd eat, yeah, I'd, egg, you see, I wouldn't eat the egg. Nah, a little allergic to that. But I do a thing... Um, called Dangerous Dining with uh, some other foreign people and we try and go out once a month to the sorts of places that we would never normally go. So oh, you wow. go out for a meal, you think, 
I know what I like. I don't, I, I don't want to waste my money. I don't want to spoil the evening. I don't want to be, have a wasted time and think, oh, that wasn't as good as I expected. So going completely the opposite approach, thinking what would be the weirdest, dodgiest thing to have and just challenge oneself. So if uh, we were at one in uh, some Nigerian place, halfway up a tower block in Wembley, and the guy there was saying, well, I don't know what all these things are myself, but I would definitely advise you not to have that. He's thinking, ha we're definitely having that. And uh, that's good. Then you end up in meeting interesting people, joining like a Congolese graduation party in some closed restaurant over at Stratford or eating Hungarian food or whatever. Just I like that. I, I, like have, that. To, I have to arrange one for tomorrow night now and think, what's it going to be? Or we've been to prison, you know, go to go to prison for lunch, like one of the... Oh yes, because they have the, they do the catering, don't they? They get the prisoners to do the catering. Is it yeah. the clink restaurants, isn't it? The... Yeah, that's that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, London is probably the best city in the world for this sort of thing because it's so mm. diverse. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. You... That's, 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 I quite like the idea. Well, I don't know about the sort of things that when people are saying you don't want to eat that, I don't think I'd go there. <laughs> well, when you mentioned the rind of cheese, I mean, I was listening to a thing on Radio Four the other day in the car, just sort of casually switched it on and they were talking about that there's a problem with brie and camembert because the mm. fungus that creates that white bloom around the cheese is uh is endangered in terms of oh. it, it, it it's been it, it, it's uh unable to um to reproduce now so no. there is dying out and so this whole form of cheese and you know hugely popular cheeses will, will have to find a new way of, of covering themselves oh that's terrible mm. that's awful news yeah isn't it so i'm just having an image of people just throw that in yeah hand grenades you know mixing oh. viagra into the mix or something to somehow invigorate it all yeah something like that class, no, no i mean it, it, it apparently it, it is all tied to do with um you know our own uh, antibiotic resistance. Oh, God, yeah. It's that because yeah. it was it was a uh, you know it, it it was a human creation. Mm. And um, yeah, it's, it's. I'll give it's, you a cheese recommendation. Go on then, because I love cheese. El, so Elmhurst, and it's Hurst H I R S T Elmhurst, uh-huh. and it's from Sharpham's uh, Dairy, Sharpham's Dairy in Wales. Lovely cheese. That's the best cheese. Okay. okay. You have to we're remember gonna, that. Well, we're we're, we're find not it. that far from Wales. It, yeah, we're not. No. no. Easily a day trip to Wales uh, to you, get some cheese. You mentioned Nigerian food. That would be on my list of things that I wouldn't rush to do it again. Was goat knuckle soup. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, which is just, I mean, it's like you might as well take a mouthful of petroleum and mm. set fire to it because it's that fiery. Oh, mm. hot, spicy. Oh, I mean... Or other things that I wouldn't recommend, cow's feet, not great, or else hard food. You know, it's like slabs of Eastern European soap, Uh, hard food from West Africa. I mean, you can have it with a lovely sauce and this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. The thing, it's kind of, you know, cassava or yam, but without any interest or tastiness. Yes, yes, mashed dodo. You have to try these things. (laughs) I think I'm going to stick with my burnt crusts. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's wise. Well, um, before we go, I really just need to ask one more question. And this is not a random one, but just, 
I'm, I'm just to satisfy my own curiosity because in your biography you wrote yeah sorry you cooked for Pele oh and uh, when I read it to him I said Pele what did I call him Pele yeah no no footballer yeah <laughs> and he said he's only the <laughs> most famous footballer and then you went no he's not Take because him. quite Pele right quite right is the... oh I thought you were going to say George Best oh well um, so Pele second best footballer in the world ever yeah after George Best. Yeah. From Belfast. Uh, so I was working in a New York nightclub. I was a kind of a cook there working illegally. So uh, there was Americans front of house and behind the scenes, El Salvadorians and Irish. And uh, Pele came in. None of the Americans were interested because it was kind of a white area with posh. He was black, foreign and soccer player. And also he put on a little bit of weight. It looked like he had a maybe a small football up his t-shirt. <laughs> and but um and he's smaller than you'd think yeah. for someone, you know, heading balls into the net in the World Cup. And uh lovely, fabulous meeting him, lovely, very friendly guy. And you know, we all emerged, you know, daring the immigration authorities to catch us and hung out with him. And uh he was really lovely. And I know what you're, you want to know. What did he eat? Question, what did he eat? A seafood chowder is what I made him. Mm. It was most delicious. It was near the coast. So um, that was a feature. And yeah, that was a highlight. Balls. He did not. <laughs> no, great man. Sadly missed. Oh, is he no longer with us? And better than Beckham. Well, I don't know much about. I mean, yeah, David Beckham and um, Mal- Malcolm Rutherford are the only two I really know, Malcolm, aren't they? She means Marcus Rashford. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. You see, you you have this chemistry between you. You know what each other means. I, sometimes I know what she means, but it, so, well, do you? Yes. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm. I'm. I think I may be running out of charge in a moment. Well, it's okay. A good job well, look. Come to uh, the... It's been a fantastic pleasure to speak to you, Paul. Um, where can we find you online? Uh, Twitter, Paul Waters nine nine, and Facebook and Instagram, that sort of thing. Or well, there's a website, imaginatively named paulwatersauthor dot com, and then the podcast. We'd like a word like we apostrophe d. Although, if you search for it, it's always wed like a word because you can't have apostrophes. <laughs> on wherever you get your podcasts and that's fun too almost as illustrious as this one almost equally no 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 No, i think it is it's it's a cut above but uh it's been fantastic thank you so much for your time and thank you very much for having me inspiring interview i like how we can get very deep on some very pertinent um subjects that everybody has experience of and then i can ask her what chocolate would you be in a box of chocolates and she just went with it (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, she did. And uh, that is one of the things that's a hallmark of our interviews. <laughs> so uh, who is our next victim for the Rebecca's Random Question? <laughs> victim. Um, so this week, uh, well, next week, in fact, we're talking to an author called Paul Waters, who you and he might have quite a lot in common. Uh, three letters, BBC. Um, yes. So he's written... Well, he's he's done loads. I mean, he's got a, an award-winning podcast as well. But he's he's the author of a book called Blackwater Town, 
um, which was published by Unbound in 2020. So we'll be finding out more about that and his inspirations and his career and his... He's done a lot of things in his life. He's so. done an awful lot, so... Yeah. He worked for the BBC too, which, um, you know, he's a survivor. <laughs> <laughs> in more ways than one, as you'll find out next week. Look, it's not all doom and gloom on this podcast because we ought to celebrate the fact that uh, the wonderful Mark Whiteman had a huge shortlisting nomination this week. He did. So, uh, and, it, and the news came to us um, on Valentine's Day, in fact, where we were tucking into a lovely steak and a delicious, um, expensive red wine. And my email popped up with Mark Whiteman saying, Guess what? I've been shortlisted for the New Zealand Book Lovers uh, Best Fiction of 2024 award. Brilliant. So, yes, as soon as dinner was over, I was dancing around on the, on the social media, spreading the news as best I could. And, and that, of course, is for book two of the Court series, which is Chasing, Chasing the, the Dragon. Dragon. Well done to Mark. Um, you know, it is a brilliant book and deserves all praise and all yeah, oh, I everything. mean, I wasn't surprised. That's, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's I, that's what I love about fantastic. that sort of news. You get that sort of news, you think, well, of course. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We we took um, a little bit of time this weekend. It was the end of half term. The boys, your boys have been away. Yeah. And um, that gave us a chance, as we said last week, we we're going to take stock a bit. And we did a bit of tidying. I think that was the, the main bit of stock taking we did. I mean, we did also do some throwing ahead and thinking things. Um, but as ever, you know, the day to day gets in the way of, you know, making yeah. super mega quick progress. And, and I think that one of the things that I'm sort of reminding myself of is that if you decide to do something, it sometimes takes three months to really fully implement the changes you want to make. Or the goal you've set yourself. Well, so. you, you actually have to give yourself dates and times to do the thing you're yeah. going to do. If you don't, it just drifts. It does drift. And um, and so that's part of what we were thinking. But we did slip away this weekend just for a couple of sort of mini visits to um, locally to us, uh, just over the border in Shropshire, is the beautiful town of Bridgenorth, um, which is, if you've not been, is spectacular. It's sort of split over two levels, the low town and the high town. And it's also the home of a new branch of Booker Bookshops. And you'll remember back in September, I, I went for a job with them at, at that store and didn't get it. But um, very pleased to go and have a look around their perfectly formed little shop in the high street. Which yeah, it's a very it, sweet little shop. It is. And, and what struck us, and we were in Chester on the Sunday as well, we went decided to go and just hop up the road an hour and a quarter up to Chester, which is, again, one of the most charismatic places in Britain, really. Um, just how many people are out and about? Now, I know we're in recession officially in this country, but the footfall in both Bridge North and Chester was huge, wasn't it? Yeah, but I bet if you went to Wolverhampton or Cannock yeah, or Stafford, yeah, yeah. the tumbleweeds will be... Totally. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I'm not trying to play it down but it's just goes to show that if you've got independent shops and a and a, and a unique sort of um historical high street with you know lots of it going going for it mm. um people will still come yeah they will mm. they will and uh, you know uh, that's that's how it felt but it just gave us an opportunity to get out of the barn uh hobeck towers and <laughs> you know potter about and see the world and get some daylight and um and have a cup of tea yeah, I, I just just get a little bit of energy back, actually, because 
you know, it's been a, a tough old few weeks. You've been mega, mega busy. I've been mega busy, but also dealing with loads of family stuff. And uh, it just like it, it was nice to just put that block in and say, right, we've done something. We've seen something else of the world. Yeah. Just the corridors of. It was of... the first time since Christmas, wasn't it? Yeah. Christmas finished, we had New Year, and then bam, we were into full on work mode. And we've been there for six weeks. So. Yeah. It was good to, to sort of, even just for a couple of days, imagine we might be on holiday. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're super mega busy this week as well. Um, quite a bit of work come my way this week, but we've got uh, we've got a guest coming tomorrow, which is going to be very exciting. Yeah, so coming we have a, a successful independent writer coming to use the studio. Yeah, <laughs> so, no and more. a friend, of course, and a friend of ours. Yes, um, which is exciting. So we've had to tidy up a bit for that. We might need to do it again. But look at the face. You now start to notice all the things you didn't touch. Um, but, uh, yeah, so busy week ahead. And uh, I've got so much audio stuff on at the moment, about four or five projects all sort of colliding into each other and demanding attention. Yep. So I shall just live in my studio uh, for the best part of this week, I think. Um, but it's, you know, we wouldn't have it any other way, really. Uh, no, it pays the bills, and so that's the main thing. Yeah, it does. It does. And, uh, you know... Let's uh, let's celebrate that. Anyway, thank you for joining us here on the Hobcast Book Show. It has been a pleasure to speak to you. I'm sorry, I really had a good rant, but it needed to be said. Um, you know, I'm just fed up with big tech taking the mickey. I really am. But it doesn't stop us from carrying on with what we do. No, and we we remain ever hopeful. So take a look at our website www.hobeck.net for details of all our books, audiobooks, dare I say it, authors and everything that we're up to. Archpub.net for our publishing services arm. Adrian Hobart narration for my narration e-bits. Uh, there'll be a new blog going up this week at some point. Uh, you can get around to writing it. I'll get AI to do it. It'll be much better, I'm sure. Well, you give me a tenner, I'll do it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we'll, we've got tons on and tons to talk about, I'm sure, in our next episode of the Hobcast Book Show. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you're new to us and enjoyed it, uh, if that uh, isn't an oxymoron, then please... Now stop it. Uh, <laughs> please consider subscribing. So from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you, and have a wonderful and... Creative... Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website www.hobeck.net You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit